Um, the reading is on page 1017 and starts at verse uh, 22. It's John 10, verses 22 to 30. Further conflict over Jesus' claims. Then came the Feast of the Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple, walking in the courts of Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, how long will you keep us in the suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you see you are not my sheep. And they follow me. Give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No, no one will match, snatch them from out of my hands. My Father, who has given them to me, is the greatest of, of all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And he come and speak to us. Good morning. There is that moment of realisation when Colin gets up to say that he's going to read John 10, verse 22 to 30, when I prepared my sermon on John 10, 11 to 30. <laughs> oh, okay. Right, how do I make this work? Um... I'm going to preach it as I wrote it, because I think this is what God's wanted me to talk about. And actually, um, we're talking, the passage carries on about the Good Shepherd, and actually, I mean, my sermon is all about being a Good Shepherd. Um, for a guy who prides himself on doing detail, I've failed dismally on that occasion, haven't I? Goodness me. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know what you want to say today. I pray, Lord, that you will help me to not get in the way of that and uh, to, to bring the message that I believe you've given me for the people here today. Amen. Okay, so what did I write down when I was going to preach this morning? Um, the passage before this is where Jesus is uh, talking um, to the Pharisees. Um, and I'll read it from, from, from verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for them, the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. This story, this passage here, we have Jesus, and it's sometimes quite helpful to, to see where it is in the overall story of, of the Bible. Um, and so in, in chapter 10, we have Jesus in prime teaching mode. Uh, he's just healed the man born blind, and he will go on to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it's not till chapter 12 that he enters Jerusalem. So we are close to the end of his, this teaching phase. Jesus' teaching, what he's saying is not going down well with the Pharisees and some of the people that are listening to him. In chapter 7, we see that they try to seize him, and no, but no one laid a hand on him as his time had not yet come. In chapter 8, they picked up stones to stone him, but he hid himself and slipped away. I think it's fair to say that Jesus was having an impact on the Pharisees and those in power, they did, and they didn't like what he was hearing and saying. In chapter 9, we see him healing a man who was born blind, healing him on the Sabbath. Now, that really put the cat among the pigeons. The Sabbath is a real issue. It's a real thing that the, the Jews then and now hold to, dear to, to the extent that some of them won't even use a light switch, in modern days, obviously, a light switch to turn a light on because that causes someone somewhere to make more electricity. So it's to that extent. So you can see how healing someone on the Sabbath was a big issue for them. So in chapter 10, we have Jesus talking to a group of Pharisees following the healing. Perhaps this was a smaller group of Pharisees that were trying to watch him more closely, perhaps trying to find ways to trip him up. And whilst they did not seem openly antagonistic to him, his put-down in verse 41 of chapter 9 was hardly affirming. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but you claim you see your guilt remains. That's pretty withering. That's hardly a feedback you want to get on your staff appraisal or your annual performance review. At the start of chapter 10, Jesus has been talking about a gatekeeper, a shepherd and sheep, and how the sheep flee from the stranger. And suffice to say, the Pharisees just don't get it. Now, Jesus was and is an expert communicator. And whilst he was using illustration, we all know and how some, somehow some of his disciples struggled to get hold of his parables. It's clear the Pharisees just didn't get this. And as teachers of the law, they should have done. Effective communication relies on an openness to a message. Listening something with a denying heart can lead the hearer to miss the meaning of what is said. If we have a closed heart and mind, we're less likely to be able to hear the message. I think we can take it that the Pharisees were not open to what he was saying. Perhaps that's in part due to the way that Pharisees were influenced by the perception of shepherds. Now, we know that Abraham was a shepherd. He's a very wealthy shepherd. In fact, at the start of the Jewish nation, they were a collective of shepherds. In the story of Joseph, him with the Technicolor dream coat, they go to Egypt, and when Pharaoh asks Joseph's brothers what they do for a living, they all say, we're shepherds. They weren't, weren't afraid of saying that. But interesting enough, the Egyptians thought the shepherds were detestable. That's why they sent them to live in the, in the area of Goshen, out of the way. So whilst they were proud to be shepherds at the time of Joseph, as time wore on, the culture of other types of farming started to take over, and the role of the shepherd diminished. 
Shepherds went from being a job that people wanted to do at the time of Joseph to a despised job at the time of Jesus. A view of shepherds can be seen from the Jewish writings where the phrase was written that no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. That's charming, isn't it? Walk on by and just let the poor shepherd suffer in his pit, in the pit that he's fallen into. That's charming. Another writing was that no one should buy wool, milk, or a kid from a shepherd. We're talking about baby sheep, goat thing, not an actual kid, because that's wrong, okay? Buying children is wrong. <laughs> um, it was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. The assumption was the shepherds would, would, would steal off some of, their, some of the, their master's flock and sell them on. In effect, they were the Del Boy and Rodney of Jewish society just without some of the lovable characteristics. It's interesting to see that whilst Jewish society seems to despise shepherds and their role, the Old Testament prophets often refer to sheep and how that God is like a shepherd to us. We see that in Isaiah 40. Now that's the passage that John the Baptist references when he's calling out in the wilderness. The passage from Isaiah goes on to say that he, God, tends his flock like a shepherd He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That is such a great description of how Jesus cares for us. Today we can often see people ignoring God's word about issues and applying a different worldview. God's word does not change. And we apply a worldview at our peril when we use it as a reference point rather than God's word. When a fashionable stance is taken by the world, be it evolution, denying the virgin birth, or whatever, our response should not be how we accommodate what it says, but rather what does God's word say on the matter. We see that the Pharisees had moved away from the model of leadership that God had intended for them, that of a servant, like a shepherd caring for her flock. The model, God's model, was left behind, and the Pharisees no longer led as they should. The Pharisees were the ones that should have cared for the people like a shepherd, but they didn't. They had moved away from that model, that character of servant leadership. They had moved away from God's word. Now, Jesus was pretty clear what he thought about the Pharisees. In Mark 12, we read that Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They walk around in flowing robes and 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 greeted with respect to the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. It was hardly a ringing endorsement of the teachers of the law at that time. In chapter 10, we see Jesus reclaiming the characteristics of a shepherd. He's clearly stating out the characteristics of a good shepherd, And he's taking ownership of that for his flock. Now the situation we see here was prophesied in Ezekiel 34. There we have a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Now it's not that God had a thing against shepherds. No, the prophecy was directed at the leaders of Israel who should have been behaving as shepherds. Uh, It says in Ezekiel 34, 
Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So you can see how even in those times, the, uh, the prophet Ezekiel is seeing what's going to happen to the nation of Israel and how they're going to move away from what God intended. So in the passage that I prepared for, um, the term I'm a good shepherd is used twice in verse 11 and verse 14. He also says five times that he, the good shepherd, will lay down his life. The first time the good shepherd phrase is used, Jesus states that he is the good shepherd and he is willing to lay down or give his life for the sheep. He contrasts that with a hired hand who runs away at just the sight of a wolf coming. The hired hand doesn't even try and fight off the wolf. He's just off on his toes and away. Now Jesus is not like the hired hand and he will stay despite the wolf coming. But what causes the difference? What is the difference between the two? The difference is Jesus loves his sheep. We read in the Bible that greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his brother. The hired hand doesn't care for the sheep. For him, they're just part of a job. Jesus, however, cares for his flock. He's prepared to lay down his life, to give all for the sake of the sheep. Why? Because he's motivated by love. Love is an amazing, powerful, motivating force. Now, one of my family's reference films... It's a bit of a strange one. It's Taken with Liam Neeson. Um, The story revolves around an ex-CIA agent whose daughter is abducted by a gang of Eastern Europeans. She is literally taken. I've got a very short clip from that, hopefully, which will play. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. Good luck. Neeson is speaking with his daughter's abductor. Uh, She had a phone uh, in the room when she was kidnapped. Sorry, plot spoilers coming out here. Um, And and they picked up the phone. The film carries on with with Neeson hunting down his daughter's kidnappers. He goes through a pretty harrowing time with it all. And whilst I don't condone his treatment of the kidnappers, nor his interview technique, by the way, um, it is clear that his, what his motivation is is not revenge. You heard him say that. He, you heard him say, if you give my daughter back, that's the end of it. He's not wanting revenge. He wants to get his daughter back. He is motivated by the love of his daughter. 
Now, why is it one of my family's reference films? Well, the year it came out, I transferred to the Met Police and I joined a specialist unit. And by the time it came out on DVD, when we first saw it, I was a protection officer. And in my children's eyes, I had a particular set of skills. <laughs> Going to run the Home Secretary's protection team, deploying to Afghanistan, visiting COBRA and the MI6 building, and whilst not being able to talk about what I did, all played to their imagination. In a bizarre way, they saw me as a minor Liam Neeson figure. And to be fair, I didn't discourage it too much. <laughs> so much so that the particular skills phrase became one that was often quoted to Kira's boyfriends, <laughs> most commonly by her brothers. Her boyfriends always seemed to be a little bit cautious around me. But when Kira went to the Middle East and the Philippines, she and I had a chat. I said to her that she was ever in trouble and needed me to do whatever it would take to get her home. I would do it. I'd already found out that I didn't need a visa to enter either country and would have got on the first plane if need be to do whatever to get her back and safe. And why? Was it her great baking skills, her ability to sew and create, her cute smile? No. It was because I love her. She's my child, and while she's an adult, I'll be the, her dad until the day I die. As like all my children, I'll be there for them. I love her, and that would be the motivation to fly to the other side of the world if she needed me. Jesus' love is way more than mine. He actually gave his life for his flock. He died on the cross for you, and he hadn't even met you. He suffered terribly in ways that are even hard to comprehend. He didn't know you, humanly at least. As God, of course, he knows all things. But in the person of Jesus, he hadn't met you, didn't know you. We read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus gave his life for you to rescue you from the clutches of sin and death. Sin and death are the kidnappers that took you to have taken all mankind and hold people captive. He went the whole way for you. He gave his life for you. How do we respond to that? Have we accepted him as our saviour, our rescuer, or have we just ignored him? Ignoring him means you're still in that kidnapper's cell, even though he has unlocked the door. Have you walked out that open door? If you haven't walked out of that door, then don't delay it. Speak to someone here today. Leave that kidnapped cell. So his sacrifice is the first way that he shows he's a good shepherd. The second way is that he shows he's a good shepherd is his relationship. In verse 14, he says that he is the good shepherd and that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. Jesus is talking about the relationship that he has with his sheep and they have with him. He knows them. In verse 16, he said, There are other sheep that are not of this pen and I will bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. So who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about Gentiles, the non-Jews. He's talking about you and me, assuming you're not Jewish. And then he knows they will come to faith in him in due course. We are part of that sheep that, he, that are not of this pen. We are part of that pen that isn't the nation of Israel. Jesus is clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the way to salvation. 
let us be clear, he is the only way. And until we become a Christian, we're not part of his flock. Now, it might come across as arrogant, but if he is the only way, it means that there are other ways, that there are other religions that are not the way. Let me be clear. He says he's the only way, which means there are other ways, there are other religions that are not the ways. Now, some people hold the view that there are other religions, are different paths going up the same mountaintop. But that's not what the Bible says. And as I said earlier, we need to reference the Bible when we have these views. Jesus is clear. He is the way to life. And being a part of his flock is a way to get life. Jesus is talking about how a shepherd will know their flock. The shepherd spends hours with their flock. It's hard to look after a flock if you're not there. These sheep are not like battery hens that are stuck in a, cooped up in a barn. No, these sheep roam the mountains, the hillsides, with the shepherd, and where there are threats of violence and thieves and wolves. But as to such, the shepherd knows them, needs to be with them, and needs to know how to protect them. This is not a nine-to-five job. It's a way of life. As such, the shepherd will know the grumpy old ram that always wants to eat the best grass. The ewe that struggled to give birth last time she lambed and had to be helped. And the young lamb that always needs a bit of comfort when he gets scared at night. In the same way, Jesus knows us. But how do we know him? We spend time with him. We can pray and talk to him. We can sing his praises and read about him in the Bible. All of these things bring us into a position where we know him. He already knows us, but we need to know him. We can come to him when we hear his voice, when he calls us. Now, I'm going to use Kira one last time as an example, well, at least in this sermon. Um, earlier in the year, I was in the U.S. with Kira. She was undertaking some security training before she went to the mission field. And I was quality assuring this security training as well as helping out on the course. As part of the course, there was an exercise when she and her group were kidnapped by armed criminals with AK-47s. She coped really well with the exercise. One of the things the kidnappers got them to do was to write a letter to their parents or loved ones. She wrote a short note to me trying to give me information about when they'd been kidnapped. She finished the note with her family nickname. Why? Because she knows me. And she knows that I know her. She was proving to me it was her that had written the letter. Few people know this nickname for her and certainly not the kidnappers. She chose that nickname because I know her, and I know her nickname. I was there at her birth, have loved her for 20 years, and know her. It was hard to see her blindfolded, being prodded in the back with an AK-47, and being challenged to refute her faith. But to read the note was heart-wrenching. And in an even greater way, Jesus has known you since your birth. Actually, you were known by him from the moment of conception. He knows your name and also what you worry about. He knows about you, what you do, and he still cares for you. You might not think you're good enough to be loved, and you're right. There's nothing we can do to be loved by God. He just does. He just does love us. He loves us with an everlasting love. As I was preparing this sermon, I felt there'd be people here today who feel that God can't love them. Perhaps things that have been done by them or done to them. Perhaps you feel distant from God and you don't deserve his love. My encouragement to you is to come and get prayer 
Ask God to reveal his love to you. In a minute, we're going to sing about God's reckless love, how he leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep. His never-ending reckless love is the thing that motivated him to go to the cross, to pay the price for your sin, for your freedom, even before he met you. Now, as you're singing this song, if you want to respond to this, if you want to know a little bit more about God's love, then come to the front. There'll be people here uh, who will pray for you and to ask God to, to exp- just express a little bit about more his love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your never-ending love to us, that love that motivated Jesus all, all the way through his ministry and to the time on the cross. Lord, speak to us now about your love. Amen.